Hello and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. On this Best Deal episode, we will explore the human side of real estate investing with a seasoned pro about to make the legendary best deal of their life. A deal isn't just the investment, it is also the person executing it. Stay with us and learn what it takes to be the best investor possible. Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Royal-Smith, the owner of Royal Legal Solutions, your one-stop shop for everything real estate investor-related, tax legal, you name it, we do it for you. Uh, I'm here with Sean. Uh, he's my good good buddy and fellow attorney uh, here. He is a brilliant man, um, and I'm excited for us to be talking about one of his uh, best deals today, everybody. Um, we're going to be talking about today is going to be a story from Sean that's actually uh, super relevant to what is going on right now in the market of real estate. And a lot of people are talking about this. And Sean's actually going to share with us one of his experiences of what it's actually like to be a person to be uh, in the same type of market that we're in right now. Um, but uh, was that like 10 years previous, right? Right. From, like, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Right? Or the 2008 crash. So, um, Sean, for everybody that doesn't uh, know you already, um, what do people need to know about you to be able to get a background for, uh, you know, to set the stage, so to speak, for, you know, this best deal we're going to be talking about? Yeah, so I've, I'm an attorney as well, like you said. You and I do very, very similar areas of law, although I'm down here in uh, sunny Florida that at least as we're recording this deal, we refuse to participate in fall. It is a, it is a balmy 80 degrees outside right now. So, uh, but I'm down here in Florida. I do a lot of the same uh, type of work that you do, but just limited uh, to Florida and to my Florida uh, clients. And so I have been a real estate investor in the past. I have owned real estate in addition to my law practice and the title company and some of the other stuff that I've got going on here because a, a couple of reasons. Number one, real estate is a great investment. It's a great investment for the future. But number two, I think as a real estate attorney representing real estate investor clients, I need to have some frame of reference to talk to my clients about the types of things that they're going through. And so I think to represent real estate investors without owning real estate really does them a disservice. So uh, I have owned real estate. I don't, uh, other than my homestead property, I don't own any real estate today because I saw the crash coming and I decided to uh, divest myself of of some of the problem children before uh, before the crash hit, and luckily I was able to do that. But I have been a real estate investor my entire career as an attorney, and so I do know when people talk about when deals go sideways, when people talk about good tenants, bad tenants, all the other things that that happen in owning real estate, I've experienced it. Yeah, I think that's really one of the key factors here is about like, you know, this experience factor. Um, one of the things that I'm always a big proponent of is that everybody hires professionals and the, the same way I do, which is, you know, people that make money in the same way you make money, right? The people that make money the same way you make money, hiring them to be able to help you is going to give you a much better levels of insight. So if you're in Florida uh, and you like Sean, make sure to uh, hit him up. Um, I think Sean, you have a, you have a podcast too, don't you? We go through all your stuff, right? I do. I do have a podcast. The title of the podcast is Crushing Debt uh, and more in line with, with the bulk of my practice, which is representing consumers and helping people uh, get out of debt. Just the other day, I had um, a bank was chasing my client for, I want to say like $29,000, $30,000, something in that range. We ended up settling it for uh, about nine grand. 
So I got it to go away for more than a, uh, less than a third of what was owed. So that's the bulk of the practice is representing consumers and making creditors go away, making those financial bullies go away. And so that's the topic of the podcast. Nice. Yeah. We got to crush that debt and fight back against those big, big, big groups. Um, which is awesome because it's usually I find like in, in those scenarios, like it's almost always worth trying to fight, you know, debt off and fight people off of money. You know, like it almost is always worth the gamble because most everybody's would much rather uh, like take less than have to go fight. Right. Yeah. A lot of times it's, it's the, the cost of litigating the banks, even the banks know that there is a, an, a non-monetary cost to battling on a debt. And, and especially if we can find, I mean, as attorneys, that's what we're trained to do is find that angle, find that quirk, find that best argument for our client that says, maybe we don't ever have to pay. And if we can position the client in that frame of, yeah, maybe we don't ever have to pay because of some legal argument, then we can really get them to settle it at a single digit low percentage on the dollar, long payment terms. I have clients that are paying $100 a month uh, on a debt until I think they're going to pay it off when they're like 120 years old. Nice. Yeah. So, obviously well, never going to happen. So well, <laughs> bucks a month. Yeah, um, dude. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, science is, amer- is an amazing thing these days. You know, you never, <laughs> you, know, go. you never know what's going to happen with that, but it's really cool. Right. It's a really neat concept. And I, I know everybody just hold on for a second. I just got to nerd out with Sean here for a second about law stuff uh, real quick, because what he's talking about with law, about how do you make it, you position yourself in a position that's going to make the other side feel threatened as when you get them to negotiate. And it's the same thing. Um, when we talk about um, with, Royal Legal Solutions is about how do you actually create legal asset protection strategies put in place to make it feel like somebody else is never going to get paid from suing you. Like what we're both doing, what Sean and I are both doing essentially is attacking the business behind the lawsuit, right? Um, and there's like, and when you can approach things from that category where it doesn't matter whether you're right or wrong, you just understand it as a business and how do you make a good business decision and business negotiation there? That's when you get these leveraged um, type of strategies with attorneys that work um, with that mentality, like we do, um, into that. So, um, anyway, I just bring us at a point of reference for everybody to be like, what the heck is Scott talking about? You're attacking the business behind lawsuits. Well, you'd have to jump to the Royal legal solutions.com website and read more about like, what the methodology of asset protection is when you look that realm. but let's jump uh, into your story, Sean. Um, what, what, what time frame are we looking at here and what's going on? What's so this was a, like we were discussing my stuff. Um, I saw the crash coming. So about my stuff is fairly simple. The, the house that I owned um, was the house that I bought and then, you know, bought another house and kept the first house and rented it out and put tenants in it and put it, uh, you know, in, in an LLC. I think I actually used a land trust with an LLC as the uh, beneficiary of the land trust to give me some further protections there. There you go. Uh, had, had the tenants paying it off. Um, I saw the crash was coming, so I sold it. Pretty, pretty bland, pretty vanilla. Is that like 2007? Uh, this was, uh, yeah, I sold it in 2007. I think I had just met. So I just started dating my, my now wife. Uh, we had just started dating. And so, um, yeah, this was right around the time we started dating. So probably around 2007-ish. Um, nice. and, and I think for me, what what were some of the red flags that the market crash was coming was people that had no business investing in real estate that were giving me investment advice. You know, my, 
What does that sound like, by the way? Because, you know, like that sounds obvious, like when you describe it that way. Right. But like, I don't think that's necessarily so obvious to everybody. You yeah. Know, what that actually looks like and feels like. It was the, so there was, we, we used to have one of the networking groups I'm in, we used to meet at IHOP regularly and we had the same waitress cause we met on the same day at the same time. And so we had the same waitress and she came up to me one day and she was having problems with her house. And so we started looking into it. She had, uh, she was a waitress at IHOP to give you the frame of reference of what her salary was like. And she owned, I want to say the value of the house was in the high $300,000 range, maybe $400,000 range. Um, her mortgage was more than that. She had, I want to say eight or nine people living with her in the house. She was the only wage earner in the house. And so a situation like that, and you look at nothing against, I, I love IHOP. I was actually there wet yesterday for our, uh, Florida Podcaster Association meeting. I, I love having breakfast for dinner. But when your IHOP waitress is saying that she's in a house that's three to $400,000 in value with a loan of that amount or more, and she's the only wage earner and she's got nine people living in the house with her, nothing against her. I'm not saying she's a bad person or I'm not saying she's an unintelligent person, but she clearly was in more house than she could have ever afforded based on her circumstances. And what does so, that look like in like today's circumstances? Are you still hearing that today with people you're talking to? I'm not hearing that as much today because the banks, you know, when, when things crashed, the banks really tightened the belts. But now I'm starting to hear that, that they're loosening the belts a little bit. They're, they're loosening the issues. We're getting back to this concept of everyone should own a house. And frankly, I don't know that I agree with the concept that everyone should own a house. We, uh, I remember doing a closing for somebody. This must have been in the 09 time frame, 08, 09 time frame. Um, one of my investors had bought a house and was reselling it. And I was doing the closing. And the person that he sold it to, uh, there was some extra funds left over. So he had gotten a loan for 100% of the value of the house, but because of the down payment, he was gonna get some money back. And the bank said, you can't give him any money back. And I said, okay, well, I've gotta account for this money on the settlement statement somehow. And I said, well, you know, we're getting close to tax time uh, here in Florida, that's November. We're getting real close to tax time. Why don't I take that money, put it in escrow, and use it to pay his property taxes when they come due in a couple of months? Bank said, sure, no problem created a quick escrow agreement. Everybody agreed. I held the money. We must have closed in, I want to say, July or August. It wasn't very long between the closing date and when the taxes were going to be due. Within three weeks of closing, I was getting a call from the buyer saying, hey, can I have my money? And I said, listen, I'm sorry. The settlement statement says I have to disperse it to the property tax collector. I'm not allowed under federal law to, to do anything else with it. Why do you need it? And he said, well, I have to replace the tires on my car and I need that money. And my thought was, if you're buying a house and you don't have enough in savings to replace the tires on your car in case of an accident, you may not have budgeted properly to buy that house. And so I think we're getting back to that time, not as bad as it used to be, but I think we're getting back to the time of banks are uh, loosening up standards. They're loaning to people that may not have the best credit. 
They're still keeping interest rates low. They're not looking into savings accounts. They're not looking into income as strictly. Um, it's still hard to get a loan, but it's getting a lot easier. Yeah, one, one of the things that I think is great about this conversation, Sean, is that like you actually pulled out before the crash, right? When a lot of people, everybody else stayed in and because they were still riding the wave to it. Um, and I think you downplay the importance of that quite a bit. Because you're like, ah, oh, what, what's the big, what's the big point? I mean, I like, guess it's okay story, but I, to me, I'm like blown away by it being like, <laughs> I want to know, how did you know to pull out? Right. And so we heard like a little bit of like, you know, what that looked like, um, during that time period, how it's a little bit different now. Um, and, and, in terms of that, you know, it, it's really important to be able to talk, I think a little bit more about how, um, how are, how would investors be thinking or looking at like, what are the, what are the pieces that, you know, people might not be picking up on right now? Um, because right now everybody's still making money, right? Things are appreciating. People are still actively investing. Now they've just gone to some different markets that are still appreciating because it's not appreciating everywhere. Uh, it's just now certain markets are still pretty hot. And so we still really see really active, um, type of investment, which is, but might be good if you're getting it at the right price points and the right cash flow in the right areas, you know, yeah, I think, you know, there's still money to be made out there doing that, but uh, I bet a lot of people aren't, I bet a lot of people are still just trying to, you know, getting in kind of at the height of the market. Um, like, what do you, you know, what do you, what do you say to those kinds of people? Or what do you, what do you think that they're missing that has them still, you know, kind of making those kind of bets that seem like they're bad bets to you? Yeah. You, I, you know, I don't know. I, I think I'm still a big proponent of you make money when you buy, not when you sell. So if you buy it right, it doesn't matter when you sell it. Um, I had a, a potential client. Uh, I was up in Tallahassee. This was right as the crash was beginning. And they were saying, well, I'm going to sell my house. And I said, oh, is this your, an investment property? They said, no, this is where I live. And I said, well, if, if you live here, I said, do you plan on staying here? He said, oh, yeah, you know, I've already graduated school. I've got a job. I'm living here. I'm working. You know, I don't think he was married yet or, or even dating or anything like that. And, and it was a long-term play to be in that house. Well, if you buy it right and if it's your homestead, who cares? Value goes up, value goes down. It really doesn't matter. You're living there. And as long as you're making your payments, at some point, you're going to create equity in that property, either through appreciation or paying down the principal or both. I think I just happen to be fairly conservative when it comes to money. Um, you know, I remember going to Vegas with the family and playing blackjack. And I remember saying to my dad, you know, if I just win another $90, I'll be up $1,000. I at that point was on a pretty good win streak at the blackjack table. And I remember my dad saying, get up and walk away. I said, but dad, all I need is 90 more dollars and I, and I'm, I clear a thousand in winnings. He said, exactly. Get up and walk away. And I think that advice has sort of filtered down into almost everything I do. Part of the advantage that we have is we get to see all of our clients mistakes. And so we get to see, you know, if you had just come to me earlier, we could have done X, Y, Z and avoided this pitfall. And so I think it's just, I don't want to say insider information, but, you know, looking at those trends, looking experience. at those clients. Experience. Yeah, I, I get different experience and I get to see all the worst case scenarios when it goes bad. That's the, what's the life of an attorney, right? Right. Things go bad and I get to see that every single day. You know, right? there, there, there are times I say to myself, if I'm sitting on the other side of the desk and I'm giving myself advice, what am I going to tell? What is me, the attorney, going to tell me, the client? And follow that 
that advice. You know, it, it's also part of, you know, how we were seeing there were, I would have from eight or nine o'clock in the morning until four or five o'clock at night, appointment after appointment, after appointment, after appointment through Sunday, if I wanted to, if I wanted to work seven days a week, I could have. And so you see that trend and you say, okay, what do all these people have in common? And some of them it's, they were overextended. Some of them borrowed more money than, than they could afford to borrow. Some of them just had a bad break. Sometimes bad stuff happens to good people. Some of them made bad investment decisions, not bad people, just made bad investment decisions. And so you look at all that stuff and you try to find the trends and, and I have to do it for my business. How many investor clients do I think I can bring on? How many foreclosure clients do I think? How many bankruptcy clients do I need to make the, the practice go? How many debt, cons, uh, debt um, harassment lawsuits do I need to file? And so you start to track all those numbers and you see all the trends. And the other thing for me too, like I said, I'm, I'm a little bit more conservative. So I had met my wife, we were getting serious and then I think when I decided it's time to propose and now we, we, we want to start a family, at that point, do I want to be a landlord dealing with my toilet got clogged, my roof needs to be repaired, my air conditioner needs to be repaired at the same time I'm having to go out and buy formula for the kid? Yeah. And, no, with, you know, that, that's like a life decision, right? Of like, how does this actually play into an overarching, you know? Right. But yeah. it's, it's the combination of all those factors that, I don't know, maybe I got lucky and I'm downplaying it, like you said, but it, it's all those factors that I looked at that I said. I, I kind of want to go back to what your dad, I want to, I'd like to actually unpack a little bit more about what your dad told you into that. And like, what does that actually mean? And sure. why, why was that so impactful? Because I think you kind of glossed over that thinking that that was obvious. And I think I know where you're going with that. Uh, but but I don't think it is as obvious as you think it is. So can you unpack that for us a little bit more? Because, because it could be that you got lucky, right? But it could be because you actually had somebody that was in your ear, you know, that was, yeah. you, know, you had that program running in your head. About what well, and, and I will tell you, if you, if you ask me who my hero is, my answer is going to be my dad without question immediately. That's going to be the answer that comes out of my head. So my father um, is a CPA. He's been retired now for about five years uh, as we record this, but uh, he's been a CPA probably near 50 years by the time we record this. Uh, it's, it's interesting how our tracks have been paralleled. So uh, he was a CPA. He was working at a big firm. The, the firm ended up going bankrupt. And so him and uh, four of his, three of his partners ended up forming their own CPA practice down in Miami. Uh, interestingly, each of the four CPAs had a son who was an attorney. And so the four sons would get together, us four sons would get together from time to time and joke, uh, we should start the same firm with the exact same name, except one would be the CPA firm and one would be the, the law firm. Uh, we, we didn't do it because we were all in different areas, different areas of the country, different areas of the law. So we never did it, but we always joked about it. But you know, my dad started his firm because the firm he was working at was shutting down. And he started his CPA firm and he built a practice and he was able to provide for his family. And then you look at my career, the reason I got into this area of the, of the law, the reason I got into real estate law is I was working at a foreclosure mill. So when people ask me, well, what, what you know, qualifies you other than the fact that you've been a real estate investor, what qualifies you to be a real estate attorney? Well, I worked for the banks taking houses away for a couple of years. And then once I learned that 
uh, aspect of the law. I flipped it on its ear and now I defend people from foreclosures using what I know to uh, having had sped them up. Uh, and I still have a handful of clients from time to time that are private mortgage investors that want me to foreclose on their behalf. But the bulk of my practice is foreclosure defense. But the reason I started up my firm is that the firm I was working for as an associate, the boss had decided to shut it down. So you look at the parallels between my career and my dad's career, they're pretty much the same. His firm was shutting down. He had to hang a shingle to make some money. My firm was shutting down. I had to hang a shingle to save some money. And so he's been a huge, my father's been a huge influence in my career. And we're still, I still call him for advice. Um, you know, I'm going to see him uh, here soon for, for Thanksgiving and for the holidays and all that stuff. He lives a couple hours. He lives up in Tallahassee yeah. and here down in, in Tampa. So um, that's really what we were talking about is having like a mentorship, like your father right. really is like your mentor. And, and so what do you, uh, and I think that an important point to underscore in this is that because he's a mentor for you, what he tells you becomes really deeply rooted into your psyche, right? And it becomes yeah. part of your programming at that point that you run the script of like, when you're making a decision or analyzing something, you probably think back, like, what would my dad say? Or my dad said this about this kind of situation to know like what to do, right? It sounds like when he's like, hey, when you have $910 at that blackjack table, that's when you get up and walk away because you just won. Right. So just take it as a win, you know? And it, it. Why do you risking, what are you risking everything for just a little bit more to come into it, right? Well, and, and digging deeper than that, it, it wasn't just that I had $910. It was the fact that I said, if I made another 90 more. So if I put that pressure on myself, to get to a thousand dollar mark, I might play differently than if I was just playing to have fun. And so now you translate that over to the real estate angle of it. You know, I got a wife and I've got, you know, where we want to start a family. And I see all these things happening with all these clients that I speak to on a regular basis. And I see what's going on. We wanted to move further away from the house than I was comfortable to be a long distance landlord. And so you had all of these factors coming in and maybe that's where it kicked in where I said, well, if I hang on to this house, then on paper, I'll make a you know bajillion dollars. But shooting for that goal would have put me in danger because I would have held on to that house for too long. I wasn't holding on to the house to hold on to the house. I was holding on to the house to have it appreciate value and knowing that at some point this bubble was going to burst. And so maybe there's your, there's your parallel in the, in the blackjack lesson. Yeah. Well, that, that's what it sounds like to me. It's like a, uh, that there's like the underlying piece of it too. It's like, who are we, who are we listening to? Right? Like what are the overarching like ways that we're making decisions? Cause what you described was saying like, I can hold on and I'll make a little bit more is exactly what um, gambling addicts say. Right. hundred like percent. The idea that I can squeeze just a little bit more out of this uh, is how almost you always know that you're making the wrong types of decisions. And this is really like a fundamental piece of like what we talk about on real estate nerds is because what, what we time over and over and over with all the guests that we have on like yourself, Sean, what we find is that it's the way that people are thinking through the decision making that is actually to driving whether they make good decisions or not, you know, ab absent, you know, huge market forces that you can't control, right? Because a lot of these things you can't really know. You couldn't know that it was going to burst in 2008, right? In a lot of ways, it sounds like um, you just had your dad instilled you with like a, the right mentality of, 
you know, you make decisions based upon like what it is that you need and what makes sense now, because you can't really control the future. And then if you're anchored into something that's going to turn you into a gambler, you're almost always going to lose. So get up off the table and walk away. Yeah. And I think exactly. I agree with you completely. It's, you know, you sit here and, and I talk with clients. I've got one right now that I'm trying to settle. He's got, he owes Discover, he owes um, Barclays Bank, he owes another creditor. And every time I talk to him, I say to him, well, you know, we need a little bit of cash or we need to propose some kind of payment plan to the bank. And every time I talk to him, he says, but I've got this deal pending. And once this deal hits, I'm going to have enough money that I can pay everybody off. I've been working with this guy for a year. He's been saying that for a year. At some point, part of the benefit, a lot of the thing, a lot of times I tell the clients, the biggest benefit of hiring an attorney is that we get to take the emotion out of your situation. I get to look at your situation logically and factually where you may have a lot of emotion around what's going on in your life, but I get, I have the benefit of taking that emotion out of it. So now the trick is all I have to do is figure out how to do that for myself. Um, I tell people the story that um, when my second son was born, uh, my wife, my wife had a, an epidural, which is basically they numb the area so she can have the baby. Um, but she had an epidural for both kids. Uh, the first one, she needed the epidural. The second one, as they were getting ready to put the needle in her back, the nurse, and, and I'm afraid of needles. So I, I, I will admit I cut the cord. I, you know, now I, I see scrapes and cuts and bruises and bangs and I don't care about it. But to watch them put a needle in my wife's back, I couldn't handle it. So I stepped out of the room um, and the nurse basically came and got me and said, dad, if you want to see your son being born, you have to get in the room now. And so as I walk into the room, she's giving birth. They, they get my son. The needle had never gone in her back. We end up getting a, and we had insurance at the time. We were covered by health insurance. Uh, this was in 2014. And a few months later, we get, uh, I think, like a $4,000 bill in the mail from the anesthesiologist. And I said, wait a minute. I, he didn't do anything. The needle wasn't even in her back. Why are we getting billed for $4,000 when we had insurance and we hit our deductible because of the birth of my son? We incurred all these medical bills. Why am I getting this $4,000 medical bill? And so, like a lot of my clients do, just out of pure principle, I said, I, I don't want to pay it. I just, I can I just don't think it's right. I don't think it's fair. I don't want to pay it. Eventually, I went to a collection attorney, and I ended up calling, talking to the collection attorney, and we ended up settling $400 a month for three months. So I paid him back $1,200 of the $4,000. I came home, and I said to my wife, yeah, don't worry about that $4,000 medical bill. I got it resolved. She said, how did you do that? <laughs> I looked at her, and I said, I said, well, you know, you realize what I do for a living, right, honey? I just, did it for, I just did it for us instead yeah. of doing it for the client. But I, I had to take the emotion out of it and I had to look at it and I had to say to them, listen, my wife doesn't work under Florida law. My wages are exempt from garnishment. You know, I know how to do asset protection. I did it long before any of these bills became due. So you know, Florida allows a husband and wife tenancy by the entireties. Florida says, if you're the sole wage earner, if you're the head of household wage earner, your wages are exempt from garnishment. You know, the house, the homestead here in Florida is protected. IRAs are protected, all that stuff. So I was able to say to the creditor, 
yeah, I'm an attorney. Yeah, I make a decent living, but I've got everything structured properly where you can't touch it. Yeah. So let's settle. And they did. Yeah. And that's what good attorney work is supposed to do. It's, it's, and that's what good asset protection is, right? It's about being able to plan, you know, for when the unexpected happens that you're already in the position to be able to negotiate it well. Because after the thing happens, whatever that thing is, it's already too late if you don't have all the pieces put in place. But that's why the law is so cool is because it's like it gives you this massive amount of leverage that to do stuff that you shouldn't be able to do. Right. right underneath like what strikes you as like what's normal and fair you're like yeah you can really go do that if you just actually are proactive um, and to me that's the cool stuff you know around so i'm excited that it worked for you there <laughs> yeah yeah it was fun and it and it is and I, I had the same conversation two different clients one who came to me and said here's what i've got how do i protect it in case something happens yeah let's move it around let's do what we need trusts let's do llc's let's do annuities, let's do, you know, let's do all this stuff to protect what you've got now versus the client that came to me that has, I think like a $700,000 judgment against him and um, a big free and clear piece of property. And I'm like, you know, sorry, it's, it's, we're too late. If we start moving stuff around now with this big judgment against you, that could actually expose more than, than it could protect. So, you know, fortunately, having the training and having the experience and being in this area of law, I just have to do for myself what I do for my clients. And I think that's, you know, one of the trickiest pieces, right. Is being able to counsel yourself. I think a lot of times that like they mostly always say attorneys should never try to be their own counsel for like court cases. Right. Right. When you start feeling the pressure and like the emotion behind, you know, feeling like it's what it's like to be when you're under attack like that. Um, almost always they're like, don't do it. Like you need to go talk to somebody else that is impartial to be able to give you the advice on it. Um, and that's what I kind of wonder about. We look at, you know, investing investors or business deals right, right now. It's um, maybe the wrong question to ask is how do I feel about what's going on in the market? Maybe the right question to ask is who's the smartest people that I can find here and that isn't invested inside of the market. And what do they think? Because yeah. those are people that aren't actually tied into it anyway, they can actually be really impartial. Um, but the hardest part in that I think is probably actually being able to trust somebody else's judgment because we oftentimes think that we actually know best and to actually defer that decision-making over to somebody else. You know, that's not, 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 not usually how we're programmed, you know? Well, but that's where we come in. So some people say to me, I did this presentation to a group of real estate investors, um, a couple of weeks ago, why hire an attorney? And one of the analogies that I made to them is, you know, I can do my own tax return. I'm smart. My undergrad degrees in accounting. I'm smart enough to do my own tax return, but my father's a 50 year experience CPA. Why not let him do it? You know, I can mow my own lawn. I, I know how to mow a lawn. I've, I did it. My dad made me do it growing up. I know how to mow my own lawn, but I can have people do it for me. And then I can go out. I went out to see a, a movie with my younger son this weekend rather than mowing the lawn. You know, I can change my own oil. I know how to do that. But I don't necessarily enjoy getting dirty and greasy and being underneath the car when I can bring it into a, a vendor that I trust and use that time to bang out a blog when I'm sitting in their waiting room while they're changing my oil. So I think that's the same analogy for us as attorneys. I mean, most, some of the stuff we do, I think you need the law degree to, to do to understand. But a lot of the stuff that we do, 
is it's not rocket science. It's, it's experience. It's, it's knowing where the pitfalls are. It's knowing where the, the contingencies could come up. And one of the reasons that people would want to hire you or me or, or another attorney is because let us do what we're trained to do. Let us do what we have the knowledge and experience to do so that you can go out and make money. You know, if you're sitting here putting together an asset protection plan and you happen to be a, uh, a mechanic, well, then you're not working on cars, you're not making money. So that, that's, that's the philosophy that I subscribe to a lot. And so that's, I think, what, what helps me add value, what helps us add value to our clients, taking the emotion out of it, being able to do those things that we're trained to do so that the clients can go out and make some money recognizing the trends in the marketplace, recognizing that the marketplace is going up, that it's going down. I do personally think there's a bubble forming. I don't think it's going to be nearly as bad as what happened in 2007, eight and nine. Um, but I do think people forget a little too quickly. Absolutely. John, one of the, I usually like to wrap up each episode with like a lesson learned, you know? Um, so one of the things I learned from our talk here today, was actually just thinking about, you know, with your, uh, it's from your, from your dad here too, with just about the blackjack table and trying to really under and really being cognizant and aware of like what our motivations are, knowing that our motivations are going to drive our behavior. Like if your motivation is actually to to, to eke out and start gambling, to be able to hit that thousand dollar mark, you're probably not going to be making the right kind of decisions there. And you're starting to make different decisions than the ones that led you to the success that you had up to the point that you did there at the table. Um, for one reason or another, that just really, that really jived with me. And I was wondering, do you have, um, is there something that if you were like, Hey, you know, this is something I want all the listeners to walk away from today to be able to, uh, as a lesson that you want to highlight out of, uh, a, a our talk here today, what would that be? Yeah. You know, I think along the same lines and since we're, we're giving my dad credit, one of his favorite expressions, which is one of my favorite expressions, which ties into this a little bit. He said, if opportunity knocks, you don't have to let it in, but you're a fool if you don't answer the door. So what are those opportunities that you don't have to take every opportunity that comes across the table. You don't have to stretch for the thousand dollars when you have nine, 10 in your pocket, but at least to consider it, at least yeah. to think, you know, is this something that could be helpful or useful? You don't have to say yes, but at least just consider it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's great, Sean. And for anybody that wants to uh, contact you, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Easiest way is the website, which is yesnerlaw.com, Y-E-S-N-E-R law.com. And that's got everything on it. That's got the podcast episodes on it. That's got the blog articles on it. There is a, a page on there for a, a contact us page. And so everything I try to drive everybody to the website and then they can get a hold of me from there pretty easy. Excellent. Well, thank you, Sean, for coming on the show. It's really great to have you. And of course, I'm Scott Royal Smith. I'm the owner of Royal Legal Solutions. I'm your host here at the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. Thank you guys for tuning in. And uh, I'll see you guys here again soon. That's all for this Best Deal episode. And I'm your host, Scott Royal Smith with the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. When investments go good, they can go great. Your legendary best deal could be your next one. So keep at it. Thank you for joining us. And if you enjoyed the show, leave a review to help clue in those sleeping masses for what they need to know and what we all need reminders of. Do your good deed for the day. And I'll see you again soon.